It's the UEFA Champions League on Paramount Plus. Europe's top club soccer tournament. Champions versus champions. The best teams facing off in the knockout rounds. Magnificent! And it all takes place. While you're filling out financial reports at work. In the middle of your day, in the middle of your week. So use that second screen. Call in sick. Do whatever you gotta do to tune in Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Nobody watches the UEFA Champions League like us. Stream every match live exclusively on Paramount Plus. Welcome in to the Hoisty Colors Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Igo, recapping another big East Carolina victory. Their second in a row overall, their fourth AAC home victory in a row, dating back to last year's game against SMU, and they have won all those games, SMU, Tulane, South Florida, and now Temple, all by double digits. So East Carolina improves to five and four on the season. They moved to 3-2 and two in the American Athletic Conference in the top half of the league in the AAC standings five games into the year. In conference play, when's the last time that happened? It's been a while. ECU also, with the five wins, reaches that plateau for the first time since 2015. Six years, the year Ruffin McNeil was fired after a 5-7 and seven campaign uh, to end his tenure as ECU's coach. It's been a long time since the Pirates have been here. It's been a long time since they beat a conference team not named UConn like that. And listen, you know, Temple's not very good. It's obvious that they're trending downward under Rod Carey. This is their fourth straight game by a loss of 20 or more points. But at the end of the day, ECU went out and did what they needed to do. And to me, for anybody who's trying to take away from what this team has achieved in terms of reaching the five wins, saying, oh, they've beat nobody, Etc. Etc. And there are some, I would say not a lot, but a few out there who are on that side of the fence. And in reality, the wins maybe aren't the most impressive in the world. But you, when you combine, in my opinion, the fashion of the wins in terms of, for the most part, comfortable victories against the likes of Tulane, South Florida, and now Temple, and then you had the near disaster of a win against Charleston Southern which I thought served as a major learning experience for the program a young team and then we saw that applied maybe to the situations against South Florida and Temple where ECU was again a big favorite against more talented teams in Charleston Southern but they went out and handled business and then you have the win over Marshall which looks like a very good football team I think they're six and three right now you went on the road to their place you came from behind and beat them so Listen, at the end of the day, five wins is five wins. Nobody's going to ask five years from now who your five wins were against. They just want to know what your final record was. But you have to look at it as in the moment, if you're truly trying to evaluate the progress of the program, the schedule does have a lot to do with it. And this is probably the weakest the American Conference has been in years. And so that is a factor. But then East Carolina has also nearly beaten... Three other teams on a schedule, of course, you got the South Carolina game, and I think we all can agree South Carolina is as down as they'll ever be when ECU is playing them. But at the end of the day, they still have SEC talent, and they went out there and beat Florida last night 40-17. to Really didn't see that one coming, uh, but that kind of shows they still have talent. And then you look also at South, or Central Florida and Houston, both of those games could have easily been wins. You're playing on the road in hostile environment in Orlando. You go on the road under tough circumstances against a very quality Houston team at home, and you probably should have won both those games. And so, 
you know, if ECU would be squeaking by Temple, if they'd be squeaking by Tulane, squeaking by South Florida, and then getting blown out on the road against these better teams in the league like UCF and Houston, then, yeah, maybe I'd be on board for the argument that how good really is this five-win ECU team? How much are they really back? But when you look at the totality of it, ECU has now outgained every every league opponent it has faced. And I know going into the last game, the Pirates were outgaining those opponents by an average of 100 yards per game. And now coming off a game where ECU basically outgained Temple by 300 yards, uh, they rack up 444 yards of offense and give up just 168. That number is going to be even more in ECU's favor. So the Pirates are, are, are making a lot of progress, guys. I mean, the, the stats, the numbers suggest they're one of the better teams in the American Athletic Conference. They passed the eye test uh, physically. They have grown tremendously over this time as a program under Mike Houston. And I give this coaching staff a lot of credit in terms of they easily could have gone out and tried to microwave this thing. They easily could have gone out and tried to go Juco, 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 transfer, transfer, transfer. And they did supplement some of their recruiting classes with those types of players. But that's not how they wanted to build this thing. They wanted to build it for sustained success. They didn't want to do the SMU model, the Temple model, some of the other models in this league who have had success that way. They wanted to build it the hard way. And, you know, there have been lumps, and there are still going to be ups and downs. This is still an incredibly young football team for the most part. But I, I think we're all seeing the fruits of that labor really start to pay off. And we're seeing that ECU barring something crazy, is going to be better than quite a few teams in this league in talent and experience for the coming couple of years as this roster continues to mold together, gel together, gain experience. And they're already stacking up wins, three conference wins, and now you've got a chance going to Memphis, going to Navy, hosting Cincinnati. You're going to be playing meaningful football no matter what happens down the stretch deep into November for the first time in a handful of years and every time out now you've got the chance to accomplish something historic something extremely significant if you're this ECU football team there's a ton to play for every single time out you know win or lose at Memphis win or lose at Navy uh, each week you've got a chance to kind of to rewrite the narrative or to continue to rewrite the narrative and accomplish something that no ECU team has done in a handful of years and that's a, uh, a significant thing for, for Mike Houston and his coaching staff to continue to, to sell to his guys. Uh, we'll get more into the Memphis matchup coming up, but, I mean, ECU has not beaten Memphis since entering the American. Granted, they've only played them twice, but the last time ECU went to Memphis in 2017, they gave up 70 points. They were embarrassed. Uh, I think it was either a Black Friday game or the Saturday after Thanksgiving, the the infamous Scotty Montgomery, he uh, guaranteed a bowl game on the post game after that game. Uh, but 70-13, to 13, that was a demoralizing loss and a dark time for the ECU football program. And, you know, look how far this program's come now. I think, obviously, Memphis has taken a step back after losing Coach Norvell to Florida State. But I think now no ECU fan went into that game with any hope and now ECU is going to Memphis this Saturday with a chance to make a bowl game a chance to continue to climb up the conference standings a chance to make a statement if you go on the road and win this game I don't think anybody's taking ECU for granted or I think they're all looking at ECU differently in a different light going forward so 
Uh, opening line today, Memphis opened as an eight-point favorite, and it quickly dropped to six. I haven't checked the numbers in the last few hours. Not not a big surprise for me. I actually guessed the line would be at seven and a half because Memphis is a weird team this year, but one thing they are good at is they are good at home. They are a very good home team over the last four handful of years. Um, very good at the Liberty Bowl. I, I do think it is an advantage that ECU will be kicking things off on the road at 11 a.m. local time start. That usually takes away from the crowd, the energy a little bit, but they had that same time against SMU and performed just fine. So uh, it'll be a tough challenge on the road. We'll get more into the matchup, what ECU faces with Memphis's quarterback, Seth Hennigan coming back. Um, really good offense, really good athletes on both sides of the ball, so it'll be a challenge. But for right now, we're recapping Temple. You know, really about the game, there's not but so much to say. I mean, if you watch the game, you know the deal. ECU dominated the trenches offensively, defensively especially. Um, Holton Aylers had another fantastic game outside of the one interception. I thought he played one of his best games of the season. The numbers don't jump out at you, but, you know, took what the defense gave him, made a lot of good decisions, and that's what it all comes down to. You know, basically played three quarters and uh, did very well. Keaton Mitchell now over 900 yards on the season after a 146-yard game. Um, you know, the the tight ends, obviously Ryan Jones with his coming out party was awesome to see. He made a couple of really good catches in the wind that just aren't easy to make and on a windy day like that where the ball is just kind of moving in all directions. So kudos to him for making some tough over-the-shoulder catches. And, and kudos for Ryan for really buying in, you know, with the staff. In the spring, you know, it wasn't – I think he was in and out with an injury, but wasn't super consistent at practice. And, you know, we weren't really sure how much of an impact he would make this year. And he's consistently, I think, since the fall came, the preseason camp, consistently put together good practices and has taken that next step, really bought in to playing offense, which he's always wanted to do. But I think just kind of embrace the mentality, the everyday grind of it that Mike Houston and his staff really kind of demand from their players. And, it's paying off, and I think really he's just scratching the surface. He still hasn't even played offense at the college level for a full year, and now he's putting up 100-yard games as a tight end uh, with his athleticism. That's going to get a lot of attention. So uh, big game for Ryan Jones. Defensively, I mean, just about everybody played well. Elijah Morris had a huge game on the interior. We talked about it. Temple's interior offensive line came into the game struggling. Uh, the Pirate defense was missing a handful of guys due to injury and still almost shut out the Owls and probably should have shut out the Owls. A lot of good coverage on the back end. The linebackers were good against the run. They were good in coverage for the most part. So uh, just a really complete day. And I thought Blake Carroll mixed up the the blitzes, the looks perfectly against two young quarterbacks and Dewan Mathis and also Justin Lynch off the bench after Mathis got banged up. So just a great all-around game uh, from ECU. Nothing to really complain about. I'm sure people will find something to complain about, like Mason Garcia's pick. I guess if you want to nitpick, not getting the shutout. But uh, overall, just a great game. Hard to complain when you win the game 45-3. to So we got a lot of questions on the Hoist of Colors message board. Uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right into those. Again, want to um, recap this game, but also put it to bed and move on to Memphis, as that is going to be a huge game coming up this week but let's dive into the questions on the hoist the colors message board okay ecu for you and me he gets us started and he's got a question about holton aylers coming back next year which we've discussed quite a bit but we'll discuss it again what does your gut tell you about holton aylers coming back next year what makes you 
Okay, we'll start with that. He's got a few other questions. Um, so my gut, my gut all along, quite honestly, has kind of felt like this would be his last year at ECU. But I've also felt that way because ECU has had a losing record for much of the season. I I think if ECU wins seven, six or seven games, goes to a bowl and maybe wins a bowl, you know, it's just going to be very tough for not only Holton to walk away from ECU, but for ECU to let Holton Aylers walk away with another year of eligibility. Because basically at that point, you'll have everybody coming back outside of a select few players from a a team that is clearly moving in the right direction. And if Holton Aylers leaves, your main concern, question, would be the quarterback position. And that's a big question to have. You know, whoever steps in beyond Aylers, whether it's a transfer, Mason Garcia, whoever, would ultimately determine that team's fate. You would have a very good defense coming back. You would have a solid offensive line, good playmakers around the quarterback, great running backs. So, I think a lot still depends on how this season plays out. You know, if ECU squeaks to six and six or loses out, goes five to seven, maybe everybody just wants a reset. If you get seven, somehow eight wins, all of a sudden it's just very tough to say, you know, hey Holton, I think you should move on, or why would Holton want to move on at that point? So, a lot still to play out over these last three games. What makes you say a few times that Mason Garcia won't be here for six years is what ECU for you and me asked. You know, that that was um, – that was – so it was brought up going into the game that, you know, ECU was looking at redshirt and Garcia. And my argument was, and what I was hearing was, why would you redshirt Garcia? He basically already got a free redshirt last year. If you redshirt him, then he's got four years left. But how many guys realistically stay in college for, for six years? Not very many. So my thing with Garcia is if he ends up being as good as everybody projects him to be, he's high, it's highly doubtful he's here six years um, because he's going to want to play professionally if it comes to that. And also it's just hard to keep a quarterback in one spot for six years uh, for a multitude of reasons. You know, if the playing time isn't there, he's probably going to transfer. You know, if Garcia ends up starting the next four years and but he isn't good enough to make it to the NFL – you know, I don't know if that's a, a scenario that's likely. I think if Garcia hits, he hits big. And so for me, I don't see him as a guy who would be here for six years given his talent level. Um, and I think if he doesn't play, he would probably leave. So I, I think there's kind of no real in-between there. He also, uh, EC for you and me also asked, how would you rate Garcia's performance yesterday, one to five, five being the best, one being the worst? I mean, he threw two passes. I mean, I guess – a a one or a two because he threw a pick. But, I mean, it's an extremely small sample size, guys. I think we we all need to be careful here about overreacting. Hey, everybody overreacted to his one great throw against Tulane um, where he threw a seed on the run. Like, that was an awesome throw, but it was one throw. It was one great throw. Everybody's talking about how great he's throwing the ball. He threw, You know, he threw one throw. And it shouldn't be any different this time. He threw one throw. The main thing is he needs to keep getting in these game experiences because, hey, now he can actually learn. The game moves faster. You're seeing defenses you've never seen before. It's totally different from practicing. And just because he started to figure it out in practice doesn't mean he's going to now figure it out in a game uh, if he's not playing. So he needs to continue to be thrown in there. Every single snap he gets is a learning experience. And we saw that on Saturday. You know, he missed a throw. 
They had to call a timeout. He didn't get a guy lined up right, or the offense didn't line up right when he was out there. So all that stuff, all those situations now, he can go on film and say, hey, here's what happened here. Here's what I need to do the next time I'm in this situation and learn from it. So, you know, there's a lot going on in Mason's uh, head right now when he's out there. So the more he's out there, the more he'll learn from him. Uh, EC for you and me continues to ask a few more questions here. Why do you think Mike Houston only expressed concern when he was asked about Holt Naylor's blocking downfield on Keaton's touchdown run? Seems the kudos would have been nice. I think he was more a little tongue-in-cheek there with his answer. I actually asked him that question. Um, listen, Mike Houston loves Holton Aylers. He loves his effort. He loves that he's a gamer. Uh, he just kind of went into an answer about how the whole team is unselfish and able to do whatever they can to help their teammates. I think he was just speaking that in terms of what Holton Aylers did as an example of kind of what the whole team does for each other. So I wouldn't read too much into that. I'm sure he – he loved it. He just doesn't want his quarterback risking getting hurt. Uh, final question from ECU for you and me. I've been surprised by the amount of decent calls we've received over the past three games after getting the American Athletic Conference shaft for years. Thoughts? I just think, personally, American Athletic Conference referees are incompetent, and I don't think as much as ECU getting the shaft as they just suck both ways, and sometimes they make errors against ECU. Other times they make errors in ECU's favor. That's my personal opinion. I just think they're incompetent is is the word I would use. Um, now, maybe it doesn't hurt that Mike Houston basically went on record and said they got to get it right. I'm sure that put a little bit of pressure on them, but at the end of the day, I just think they suck. I mean, that's my God's honest opinion. Uh, RB Pirate 5, he says, Julius Wood stood out to me as a newcomer recently playing could be a safety of the near future thoughts i think this team's got a lot of safeties of the future i mean i think this team is and they offered a safety or two for the the 22 class which surprised me because i feel like this team is pretty set at safety for the foreseeable future i mean you look you are losing warren saving dj ford and i guess depth is always a concern but i mean you're scheduled to bring back Jawan powell he's a freshman Scheduled to bring back Tegan Wilk. He's a freshman. You're scheduled to bring back Julius Wood. He's a sophomore. Um, who am I missing? You're scheduled to bring back Sean Dorso. He's a sophomore. You're scheduled to bring back David Laney. He's a freshman. I mean, you got a couple other walk-ons who are pretty good who are freshmen. You got guys playing Sam and Jaira Wilson, Gerard Stringer, who probably are more Sam than safety, but if in a pinch had to slide back to safety, they could probably do it. So, I mean, you got some real depth there. I guess you want to continue to add depth there for special teams and always to make sure um, because you're missing Powell and Ford this last game. Safeties do get beat up over the course of a season. But I think Julius Wood's a gamer. You know, probably needs to add another five pounds or so, but he runs really well. He's long. He's athletic. He plays pretty smart. I mean, just watching him, you know, seems to have good instincts for the position. Good special teams player. He's graded out well in special teams all year. So I think the more he gets familiar with the system, the more he'll continue to play at a high level. Um, really projects well as a field safety with a lot of speed and size. I mean, I think him and Jawan uh, ideally play more field. And then you've got Sean Dorso and Tegan Wilk at the boundary going forward. Uh, Sean obviously can play field too, but. I just think you want to be legitimate too deep at both those spots, and right now ECU is that for the foreseeable future as long as everybody stays. A lot of talent, 
a lot of good stuff there um, between those those two positions. All right, ECU grad 04. He's got a ton of questions here and a lot of great questions. And I'm just going to say up front, he's got some questions I can't answer because, um, you know, a lot of the this information, again, is not public or not easily accessible. And honestly, it would be better for when we have like John Gilbert or somebody on the show. So I'm going to save some of these questions for a show like that, ECU grad. Um, I will do my best to answer, though, some of these questions that I can answer. All right, number one, ECU grad wants to know, he says, how does the ECU athletic department budget compare to other new American athletic conference teams in terms of what they specifically or categorically spend their budget on? Uh, how do we compare, as I understand, pre-COVID-19 budget, ECU had one of the higher non-Power 5 athletic department budgets, but other new AAC teams have been able to build more and bigger facilities than ECU along with paying head coaches and assistant coaches more than ECU. All right, so i got to give a shout-out here to Jared Kalmus, who works for, looks like he's a UTSA supporter, but he is the Conference USA editor for Underdog Dynasty, which is part of the SB Nation. So he compiled some numbers here on the Budgets for the incoming programs compared to the uh, returning and remaining AAC programs. So ECU's athletic budget, not sure exactly what years these were based off of, but the year, whatever year he had, ECU athletic budget was $52,745,000. Memphis, for comparison's sake, $61 million. Temple, $60 million. USF, $58 million. Uh, so ECU, the lowest of those four, but Navy, SMU, Tulane, Tulsa, all unavailable due to um, being a private school. So $58 million is the average of the remaining AAC teams. Now, the incoming teams in terms of athletic budget is, here's what Jared found out. So Charlotte, $39 million, FAU, $37 million, UAB, $35 million, North Texas, $39 million. UTSA twenty nine million, Rice unavailable due to uh, being a private school. The average of the incoming school thirty six million for athletic budget, and the average for the remaining AAC schools fifty eight million. So that is a uh, that is a giant difference there. From what I understand, and I don't know how to quantify this, uh, but from what I understand, ECU or uh, excuse me. The incoming schools are planning to invest more in their athletic programs. I don't know when that budget increase will occur. I don't know how much it'll be by, but I do know the American, as a request for joining the league, was, hey, how much can you conceivably budget? How much more can you invest into the athletics program if you join the American? Because that's what it's going to take to compete at the P6 level. That's what Mike Resco says or whatever. Uh, so the plan is for those programs to invest more to up their athletic budgets. I don't know if they'll reach the 50 million mark, the 40 million mark, uh, or the 50 or 60 million mark like some of these teams coming back are already at. Uh, that is an increase, and that is a significant increase. So I, I don't know if that's going to happen overnight, over time. I would venture to say probably more over time as it's hard to just up your athletic budget overnight. You know, from 38 million to 50 million, 
unless you're raking in a lot of money off a new TV deal, and that's not going to happen right away for these incoming teams. So I think the teams like ECU, even though they're the lowest athletic budget of the remaining public schools in the American, I would think that ECU would have a pretty significant advantage over some of these programs. So, uh, But it is interesting that UTSA basically already paying its coach, Jeff Trailer $2.8 million to keep him. That's that's over a million more dollars than ECU pays Mike Houston. Uh, so I don't know if they're just investing in football only for now, not investing in the other sports or what. So each school is kind of an, a different individual case, and I, I honestly don't know enough about UTSA, North Texas, Charlotte right now to really comment on them. Um, so he's got a, a couple other questions here about you know UTSA, their investment how much it's tied to the city of San Antonio, how, how ECU could could tie things to Greenville and uh, help help with that situation, get some, some money from the city. You know, I'll have to ask John Gilbert and the administration about that. I would venture to say San Antonio has probably got a bigger budget than Greenville. Um, and let's see, some football questions from ECU grad. He says, how many games has Mason Garcia played this year? through the Temple game in regards to last year being a COVID year and this year being a potential redshirt year. So uh, the Temple game was his fifth game, so therefore he can no longer redshirt. As I said earlier, the goal was to get him experience because experience is more important than getting him an extra year that he may or may not take advantage of. Uh, Do you expect Holton Aylers and Mason Garcia to both return to play for ECU next season uh, is what... ECU grad ass. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I would venture to say I, I I don't you know, if you had a gun in my head, I would say both are not here next year. I think one or the other is gone. But again, you know, it's not like Mason has proven anything at this point at the college level and if Holton Aylers goes out and wins seven or eight games, it's gonna be very hard for ECU to to tell him to move on or for Holton to want to move on. So a lot still to play out. And I honestly, I don't know. I mean, it's more of a gut feeling than anything right now. Uh, he also asked about AAC ESPN Plus ratings. I think he's asked about this before. Still, you know, I've actually sent an email to ESPN PR. have yet to hear back from them on what ECU's ESPN Plus ratings are or in comparison to other schools, all that stuff. So still waiting on a response there. Uh, number the sixth question he asked, the final question. With the potential of ECU making a bowl game and rumors of a forthcoming indoor football practice facility with or without football operations within, in your opinion, do you think Ruff McNeil was added to this year's Hall of Fame class in an attempt to repair slash reattract fans of his who do not currently purchase season tickets and future donations to an indoor football practice facility? My question is not to debate whether correct or not, but relate only to my stated question as his play calling or his playing coaching wins record merit his inclusion? Uh, great question. I honestly have not thought about it like that before. <sighs> you know, I do know multiple fans that came to ECU games for like probably 30 years. And the way ECU ended Ruff McNeil's relationship or fired him, I know that this individual or these individuals have not purchased season tickets since and have not come back to games since. So, I mean, there is, I don't know the percentage, but there is a group of people that you could conceivably 
repair that relationship with Ruff McNeil and get those people back in, in one fell swoop. So, you know, I, I do think that could be a factor. I don't think that that was part of the reason Ruff was added back to the Hall of Fame. I think it was really done because everybody sees the situation for what it is, that it was a wrong in terms of how the whole situation was handled. Um, and I think Ruff McNeil is a deserving Hall of Fame member, and I think that was the reason it was done, and to repair that relationship with Ruff more so than to get more donors and, and stuff like that off of it. Um, so that's just my opinion, but maybe it, it, it does play a role at the end of the day. All right, next set of questions here. And again, ECU grad, next time I have John Gilbert or somebody on that can answer the rest of your questions, I will do my best to uh, to get them uh, and to get those questions in front of them. Uh, Berg Pirate says the crowd sucked yesterday. What do you real- realistically think has to happen for us to return to having consistent crowds of forty thousand people in the stands? So I'll say this: I was very disappointed by the crowd. And I, I also say this, ever since I've gone to ECU games as a kid, the attendance as the months go by, whether the team is good or bad, drops off like clockwork. You know, I don't know if this is, I don't know if this is the case at every school in the South, but, you know, and I love ECU fans to death. I love you guys, but there, there are a ton of fair weather ECU fans. Like, by the true definition of fair weather. Like, if it is less than 60 degrees, if it's 59 degrees and there's a threat of rain, they're not showing up. They're not showing up. And I I don't know if that's just, like, why that is the culture here, but that's just how it is. And so you had the threat of rain, which I thought, I I think legitimately scared off a lot of people because the forecast was calling for significant rain for most of the week. So if you're an out-of-towner and you're making those plans... All of a sudden, come Thursday, come Friday, you're probably not going to the game. And then the forecast changes, what, Friday night, Saturday morning? By that point, that person isn't going to change their mind more times than not. So you had that factor working against you. Two, you also had the factor of the season ticket sale, season ticket numbers were so low that it's just going to be very hard to increase or get those numbers up to a respectable point. You know, the, the announced attendance was 30,000. The actual butts in the seats, probably maybe 20,000, 25,000. If that, probably a little on the optimistic side. But I think with the season ticket base being so low, it's so hard to get the average fan to come out to the game. Um, and I think if you have season tickets, you're more likely to say, all right, we bought these tickets, so let's go to the game. It's hard to get your single game fans out there at the actual game on short notice. And again, the team is playing much better. They deserve more support. I a hundred percent agree. You know, we got a thread on that on Hoisty Colors. It's being heavily discussed about how to get the fans back more into it. But you know, as far as what's going to take, what's it going to take to get ECU back to that 40,000 mark consistently? You know, for me, it's simple. We've gotten into this rut because of consistent losing. The only thing that's going to get it back is consistent winning. You know, they say winning is a habit for the players, for the people within the program. I think winning is also a habit in terms of the fans. You know, I just have so many friends that all they did going, you know, growing up, all we talked about was ECU football, ECU football, ECU football. Every game... When the schedule came out, you plan your fall around ECU football. Hey, ECU's got a home game on October 10th. 
I can't be anywhere else. I have to be at Dowdy Pickens Stadium. Well, these last five years, like that went by the wayside. Nobody was, was making appointment viewing attendance because the games just, you know, nobody knew if the team was going to be good or not. More than likely, the team was going to be bad based off recent history. So you had five, six years of that, and it's just it's hard to get all those people back overnight. And so the only thing that's going to get them back is consistent winning. This is the first year where ECU's played really well at home from start to finish. Been in every game. You know, I think 4-1 and one at home now. Probably should be 5-0. and oh. And, you know, losing that South Carolina game unfortunately hurt because not only did you lose your biggest crowd of the year, you lost the game, but also the concession situation wasn't good. The operations side wasn't good. That left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. So, you know, next year, I think, the, the opener against NC State is vital for a number of reasons. I'm, I'm not trying to look ahead too much to next year. But, I mean, here's the reality. ECU, from an operation standpoint, cannot afford to blow that game. That is going to be a big crowd. And from a football standpoint, a strong showing on the field would leave a really good impression in a lot of people's minds. Because hopefully ECU finishes this year bowl eligible. Six, seven, heck, maybe even eight wins. We'll see how it finishes out. You'll have momentum going through the offseason. And you open with NC State. You want to get your average fan back? You play at NC State or UNC at home. You want to get your average fan back for good? You win that football game. Then those fans are coming back for Old Dominion and Campbell the next two weeks. You lose that game. You have a terrible experience due to the concessions the ticket gates, etc., then you're going to lose those fans. So I think consistent winning and also next year's NC State game is a huge moment for the ECU football program for the short and long term. Huge opportunity on several levels uh, for the reasons I just mentioned. So, uh, again, it starts with winning, but the fans have to do their part. You know, we talk so much about how great Pirate Nation is, and I think the diehards are great. The guys who are listening to this podcast, you probably don't need to be told this, but you know the fans have to do their part, man. You got to show up. You got a team that is fighting its ass off. Uh, these guys are pouring their heart and soul into it. They deserve the support. And I know that the Cincinnati game does not fall on a good date, but people need to be in the stadium that day if you can. You know, make your plans. Everybody's off work on Black Friday. Right? I shouldn't say everybody. A, a, a majority of people are off work on Black Friday. Why not spend your day off watching ECU? host the top five Cincinnati team. That sounds like a hell of a day to me. So, um, I mean, if you want to go spend the day shopping with your wife or girlfriend and be miserable, go right ahead. I would try to find my way in Dowdy Ficken Stadium. All right, I need to stop ranting. Otherwise, this podcast is going to last way too long. Uh, number two, Donnie Kirkpatrick uh, from Bird Pirate. Donnie Kirkpatrick called a great game yesterday. I'm still concerned about our quarterback development. Berg Pirate asked, do you think we'll see some staff tinkering in the offseason to bring in an experienced quarterback coach? Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, you know, Donnie, you know, he is a pretty experienced quarterback coach. I know people want to say he's never coached quarterbacks, but I think he coached Chris Redman at Louisville. You know, that guy was pretty good. Yeah, he has more of a background as a receivers coach. I would like to see an experienced quarterback coach come in or somebody to work with the quarterbacks in that capacity, but I just don't see how you're going to make that work with the staff if the staff stays in place as it currently is. you got Brian Shore, who's a young quarterback coach, really, as a grad assistant. He was the quarterback at JMU under Kirkpatrick in Houston, so he kind of works with the quarterbacks now. But if you want to bring in an experienced coach, that has to probably happen 
at an on-field uh, assistant position. And if Donnie Kirkpatrick is your offensive coordinator and quarterbacks coach, I don't really see how there's a place for that to happen. So, uh, again, there can always be some tinkering. Maybe you're bringing an analyst for that role or whatever. But I do think, obviously, quarterback development will be crucial for the future of this program, not only with, uh, obviously, with Holton Aylers the rest of this year. We'll see what happens in the future. But they got to find a way to develop Mason Garcia, whether it's Donnie Kirkpatrick, whether it's somebody else. Um, he's got all the physical tools. How do you get him there mentally? Which, you know, two years into his career, he's obviously still trying to, uh, you know, to find that consistently. And more game experience will help that. Uh, Yakin asks, why haven't we been able to get to the quarterback lately? Only one sack over the past two games. So, you know, getting to the quarterback, I would say, is, you know, you can't just rate it by sacks. I think the pressure has been there at times the last two games. More specifically for me was the Temple game. I thought South Florida had a clear plan to get the ball out quickly, which is why Blake Harrell blitzed less as that game went on. Played a decent amount of coverage, which seemed to really affect them. Uh, Also, ECU had 12 quarterback pressures credited to them by um, Pro Football Focus. At the end of uh, Saturday's game against Temple, again, two sacks, three quarterback hits, and seven hurries. Sometimes just hurrying a play is more important or just as important as getting a sack. For example, one of those hurries should have led to a pick. Uh, Justin, or uh, excuse me, Julius Wood just couldn't corral the pick. So um, part of it is due to the opponent, how they're playing it. You know, ECU doesn't have a much of great one-on-one pass rusher, so they have to blitz a lot. And when teams are getting the ball out quick against that blitz, it makes it tough to get home. But I thought there were several instances in Saturday's game against Temple, more so than against South Florida, where the pressure didn't necessarily get a sack, but it forced an errant throw or an incomplete pass or got ECU off the field. So I don't really pay – I used to pay a lot of attention to sacks, but now I just honestly pay attention more to pressures. Um, not to sound like some football savant, but I just think it is more important than sacks. By the way, speaking of sacks, uh, Elijah Morris credited with two sacks by Pro Football Focus, which is accurate. Both of them happen on the same drive. ECU statisticians only accredited Elijah Morris with one sack, and I got a I got a problem with um, with this. I got a problem with statisticians who don't know what a sack is versus a quarterback run. All right, so a quarterback design run. Like there's a clear difference between a draw or a you know a, a read, some type of design run versus a quarterback who drops back to pass. The pass isn't there, so he scrambles. You know I heard in the press box yesterday that just because the quarterback tucked the ball and ran when his initial reads weren't there, that is that is a run and not a sack. No, that is not accurate. If the quarterback drops back to pass and looks to throw the football and then he is pressured and has to scramble just because he's scrambling and tucking it if he doesn't make it back to the line of scrimmage that is a sack that is what happened on the first elijah morris sack and it was credited as a tackle for loss which was not accurate so uh, i don't know if the ecu coaches are going to try and get that correct or not but elijah morris got two sacks in the game on that one drive he got three pressures overall according to Pro Football Focus. and um, But, yeah, there's a, a huge difference. You know, if it's a design quarterback draw, the quarterback catches it, takes a step or two back, and then pulls it and runs. You know, a, a, a sack or a 
Um, a scramble is when the quarterback is clearly trying to make a pass. It's not there, and then he tucks it and runs. So there's a huge difference, and we got to figure that out. Okay, another – I'm ranting too much. Um, so ECU Buck 88, he's got our next question. He says, you're 8-1 and one with your game predictions of the season. What was your best record for predictions in a season? Uh, probably this season, honestly. I'm usually not too great at game picks, but I've I've just had a good feel this year. You know, we do our picks, and, and game picks are, you know, they're fairly easy. You know, th- to pick a winner straight up is not that hard, I, I think. Uh, and this schedule has been pretty, I don't want to say obvious, but like, you know, basically how we thought the season would go in terms of, hey, here's ECU's path to six wins in a bowl game. It's pretty much played out like that, outside of maybe switching uh Marshall in South Carolina. But we do our picks against the spread on Pirate Radio Live with Clip. And I think I entered this week like 30 and 14 against the spread, which is just an insane number. Usually I'm right around 500. Um, I got, and I totally blew the spread on the ECU game this week. I thought Temple would cover. So I'm a genius. But uh, I think I, I got North Carolina as far as them winning and covering. And then I know that I got... Memphis covering against SMU. I don't know about the other games, but I've I've just had a good year. I've had a good feel for it sometimes. You know, you just have a good feel for these things, and a lot of people go off analytics. I go more off gut and the eye test, a lot a lot off situations. For example, you know, SMU fades down the stretch every year. They struggle on the road. They were coming off a tough loss at Houston. They were playing on the road against Memphis. Memphis very up and down, but they're good at home. Just had a feeling about that. You know, Wake Forest – very good offense, but North Carolina can score. Wake Forest doesn't have much of a defense. Figured UNC would outscore them. Purdue had a really good feeling about them beating Michigan State, so I picked them to cover Michigan State coming off a big win, going on the road. Like Just those classic gut feelings, those classic situational picks is what I more go off of. And I still don't know what I'm going to pick with ECU and Memphis this weekend. Um, Buck Wild, he says, Who are we 100% losing to graduation this offseason? So, good question, Buck Wild. Uh, some of these situations are different. Let me pull up the roster real quick and, and run through these seniors, and we'll, we'll I'll give you the guys who are definitely gone. All right, so you have seven official seniors on the roster. Bruce Bivens, senior, he will be gone. Warren Saba, he will be gone. John Young, your punter, he will be gone. Aaron Ramsour, uh, the six-year linebacker, he will be gone. Um, and also, let's see, Sean Bailey, he will be gone as he is a six-year senior. Um, Justin Chase will be gone as a senior. And I believe, you know, uh, DJ Ford as well, gone as a senior. So let me make sure, sorry, I'm doing this as I speak. Uh, Lorenzo Dorr will be gone, Fernando Fry. So you have a, you have... Eight or nine guys, and the one I'm not 100% sure about is Audio Matosho. You know, he is a graduate student. He is technically a senior, and but I think he might have a year of eligibility remaining, but he's like 25. So I don't know if Audie is going to come back or not, but I know for sure the other guys I just named are going to be gone, gone. So eight or nine guys there, and then you got some juniors, some redshirt juniors who have decisions to make who will be graduating like Holt Naylor's. Probably like Xavier Smith, some of those guys who will have decisions to make. Um, let's see here. All right, rolling through these. Got a lot of comments. 
Uh, any update on Justin McMillan or Justin McMillan? Uh, Jaquan McMillan's ankle. Any other injuries from Saturday? Uh, Jaquan McMillan. You know, I, I've not heard an official update. I've not talked to anybody, but I do know that on Saturday. He went down. He was grabbing his hammy on the ground, so I thought it was a hammy at first. But he got his ankle taped in the tent, came out, looked to be limping a decent amount, but like was kind of standing on the sideline beside the coaches, talking to the coaches, trying to kind of maybe lobby to go back into the game. Did not come back into the game. No need to put him in the game. It was 35-0. to zero. And so it looked like he uh, maybe either re-injured what had happened the previous week or something new had happened. I don't know exactly what happened there, but it didn't. You know, I was I was encouraged by the fact that he remained on the sideline, remained engaged, did not go back to the locker room. So it looks like either a um, a sprained ankle or something of that variety, and we'll see how it responds in these coming days. Any other injuries from Saturday? Uh, I think you had a few guys get banged up, but nothing serious. The more interesting thing for me is watching. You know how you know Juwan Powell, DJ Ford. Uh, if they're going to be out short or long term, as they didn't even dress, then you had Chad Stevens and Aaron Ramsour who were dressed but did not play. So what is their status going forward? Um, so those are some things I'll be watching. Uh, Starn he comes in with some questions. Many of us com- complained about the offense over the first several games, myself included. Now after a few good or really good performances, I'm wondering if I needed to be more understanding about and patient with the development of the O line, especially after the big losses there early on due to injury and disciplinary actions. How much weight do you think? How much weight do you give to the O line's development for our upward trajectory in the last two games? You know, I think you got to give the O-line a lot of credit, A, for sticking together, uh, but B, for, you know, just continuing to improve. Um, it's some tough circumstances. Avery Jones playing banged up. Noah Henderson's playing far less than 100%. You know, Justin Chase has done well at left tackle, um, you know, all things considered. So, like, and then you got Fernando Fry, Sean Bailey, the, the veterans at guard. Nashad Strothers played tackle and guard. So it, it just wasn't ideal that they lost Bailey Malavik so early in the season because I think he was going to be a big key to hold that line together um, with a breakout season. And it just never got a chance to occur. You know, the reality, though, for me, like for me, it's more about matchups at this point. I think the O-line kind of is what it is, and that's no disrespect. I just think if you're facing a really good defensive front like Houston, you're going to see the offense struggle. If you're facing a more average group like Temple, South Florida, Tulane, you're going to see the group do well because I think the group kind of is what it is at this point. You got some veterans, some guys who have played. You know, that group is not developing too much at this point. They're more maxed out. Like they have the experience. You've got Nashad Strother and Avery Jones who are probably still developing. They're younger guys learning new positions. Uh, but, you know, Bailey, Fry, Justin Chase, those guys kind of are what they are. Henderson, you could argue he's still developing, but he's also playing injured. So I think the group kind of is what it is, and it's more about what's the matchup. And then if it's not a good matchup, how can ECU find a way to hold up enough up front? How can you scheme up different ways to overcome those maybe bad matchups and still have success? And that's why when ECU plays Houston, which has a pretty elite edge rushing group defensive front, ECU has to play nearly flawless to win that game. If they make mistakes, they turn the ball over. If they, you know, miss a block, 
drop a pass, have a holding penalty. Like those little mistakes add up more so than they do against the Temple or South Florida where you get away with more stuff or you just have better matchups. So to me, it's more matchup based. And I think the offensive line kind of is what it is at this point. I think you'll see more development this offseason. Obviously, you lose some key guys like Sean Bailey, Fernando Fry, Justin Chase. But I think you got some young guys in the stro in the, in the Strogram, in the program like Strother, um, like Jones, who will continue to come along. You'll get Malavik back, but then you also see guys like Isaiah Foote, uh, Walt Stribling, you know, the group of guys for a red shirt and Richard Pierce, some of those dudes that that have a chance to really grow up these next few years. So I think you got some young guys in the program who can really kind of elevate that group to the to the next level once they get uh, to the level that they can get ultimately. Uh, Nova Pirate, he says, Stephen, do you think the staff, after seeing Garcia get get a little playing time against Temple, feels an urgent need to find a proven quarterback in the transfer portal after this season? Well, you know, I get what you're saying, Nova. I know you you know a lot of football. I think the staff knows. The staff knows. I mean, what they saw from Garcia yesterday shouldn't be a surprise because they see it every day in practice. So I don't think it's a coincidence that ECU brought in a transfer quarterback from Tennessee, Brandon Maurer, for a visit earlier this season. They know that if Holton Ayers leaves, they probably have to bring in somebody with some experience to at least compete with Garcia. You can't go into next season with Holton Ayers gone and just Garcia. you got to have somebody to push him, whether it's guys already on the roster like Stubblefield, Flynn, Walter Simmons, or a transfer coming in to push Garcia, you know, I don't think you can roll with just Mason Garcia because we know he needs a lot of development. I think the staff knows that. I don't think anything they saw on Saturday was a surprise. So, I, I you know, I think it was more of a wake-up call to the fans that, hey, Mason Garcia still has a very high ceiling, still has more to learn, and he still needs to be put in those situations as much as possible because he's still got a lot of growth to do. And the only way you make that growth is by being thrown into those situations. All right, Pirate Backer, he says, uh, to emphasize what Berg, Berg Pirate said earlier, Pirate Nation was weak last Thursday and yesterday. What is the thought about the attendance from your sources in the athletic department? I mean, we have a pulse. We play defense with a relentless passion, and we look like a D1 team again while our butts in the seats numbers are dropping. My section has some hardcore Pirate loyalists, but we could all lay down in the bleachers and not touch each other since the USC East game. We are in premium seats as well, so it's not a walk-up general admission section. It's frustrating and honestly embarrassing on ESPN to watch the replay. So, I mean, yeah, I think that's I think that's fair. I mean, I think it is fair that uh, that it's 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 been uh, it's been frustrating if you're a diehard EC fan and you and you make the effort to go to these games from hours away or even just in Greenville, and uh, you you want to support the team and you show up to the games, it is a little disheartening to see that the seats beside you are empty. Um, and I kind of touched on this earlier, but I just think East U fans have to do better. And I think on one hand I get it due to the last six years, but on the other hand we've all been saying, well, if the team just competes better, if they just get back to winning – you know, I'll show up, and then so many of those fans haven't showed up yet. And maybe it just takes a full off season of, hey, now I know the CCU team is going to be back to playing a good brand of football. I'll make sure I'm in the stadium next year. Uh, maybe it is that simple. But uh, I, th- I think ECU fans need to be better. I'm not saying that anybody 
from the coaching staff or administration needs to come out and challenge the ECU fans because I don't think that's that's ever the way to go. But I want to see ECU fans challenge other ECU fans. Uh, if you have a friend that's on the fence about showing up for the Cincinnati game, challenge that fan to be there. Challenge that fan to be the one who makes the difference. So I think that's how I view it. Um, as far as my sources from the athletic department, I you know I don't know. I don't think I don't think they're super surprised or frustrated. I think they do want to do whatever they can to get more butts in the seats. I do know from talking with somebody in the marketing department going into the Temple game, this person was not as concerned about, hey, what is the ticket sold number going to be? He was more concerned with, hey, for the people who are there, how can we make this the best atmosphere possible to help the team on the field? How can we add more energy to the stadium to help the team on the field, to help them win, and in turn, maybe help bring that extra fan or two the next game? and make more of an impact that way. So I think they're taking the right approach. Obviously, you want to get as many tickets sold, as many people into the stands as you can, but you also want to make it a fun game day experience for the ones who are there. And I thought it was, you know, a pretty electric, I don't want to say electric, I thought it was a pretty good environment for the amount of fans who were there. Um, you know, it's still, you know, it's still not the same as as what we grew up watching, as what we, we know it can be. And I still point to next year's NC State game as an opportunity for it to get back to that point. I think if the team continues its current upward trajectory, I mean, I want to see ECU's marketing staff, their athletic department, if the Pirates go bowling, I mean, they have got to just hammer folks with season ticket sale deals, uh, special packages, all sorts of stuff. Um, but I think they know. I mean, I think they they get it. They know that, that the fans... Uh, are jumping back on board slowly, and I just think it's going to take a lot of consistent winning uh, to get all of them fully back. But I do think you can make a big jump over this offseason, assuming you make it to a bowl game, assuming you get six, seven wins, and then you have that NC State carrot at the start of next season. I think that's a lot to build up for. I mean, when's the last time ECU opened with North Carolina or NC State at home? Not in their home opener or on the road, but in their season opener at home. It's been quite a bit. I mean, I know Mike Houston played his first game at NC State, but it's been a long time since ECU opened the season against NC State or North Carolina, and those are always the best drawn games for East Carolina at home. So that is a huge opportunity to really sell season tickets for next year and to fill the stadium, and then you win a lot of fans if you find a way to perform well in that game. So uh, this season... Unfortunately, I think it kind of is what it is. As I talked about earlier, the attendance number kind of drops off throughout the year. Ever since I've been going to ECU games my entire life, uh, a lot of Fairweather fans out there, but I think you can get them back. I think you can get your diehards back that have left the program too uh, starting next year that aren't coming out this year. So hopefully, Pirate Backer, it can be fixed. I think deep down it can be. I just think it's it, do, it just doesn't happen overnight as much as we maybe want it to just magically show up and there be 40,000 people for when ECU hosts Temple as a 4-4 four and four football team. I just don't think it's quite that easy. Um, but, yeah, that's my two cents on it. I think we can see a big jump this offseason, though. All right, that, that, that looks like that is the final question. And that'll do it for our podcast. Man, a long one. Uh, a lot of good questions from you guys. I saw ECU Pirates backwards say, I think this is going to be more like a storytelling podcast, and I'm okay with that. 
Yeah, I mean, I feel like we didn't even really discuss the Temple game. It was more just a lot of random stuff. But, uh, hey, that's what the best podcast is. I just sat here talking to myself on an audio recorder for 55 minutes. And now I'm going to go to sleep. By the way, how bad is daylight saving time stink? I mean, it's like it was 6 o'clock earlier and it was pitch pitch black outside. That was weird. Um, so, yeah, I got to go to sleep because I'm feeling delirious. But I uh, appreciate you guys for the questions and the um, the entertainment as always. Hope you guys enjoy the podcast. We'll be back later this week with the Memphis preview. Um, and going to be heading to Memphis Friday evening, so I'll cover that game. I'll get in late Friday evening and then have to wake up and roll basically straight to the stadium. Got a 5 a.m. flight out on Sunday, which will be glorious too. But at least it is an 11 a.m. local start on Saturday. So looking forward to bringing you a lot of pregame coverage as ECU goes for win number six at Memphis. It'll be a, it'll be a huge game, huge week of coverage, um, and appreciate you guys as always for listening and tuning in to the Hoist of Colors podcast. Until next time, we'll talk to you. I'm Stephen Igo. time of the year fantasy baseball draft season is upon us which means you need to listen to fantasy baseball today part of the cbs sports podcast network join scott white chris towers and me frank sample six times per week throughout march sleepers breakouts busts live mock drafts spring training updates and everything in between every monday through saturday make sure to download and follow on apple Podcasts, spotify the odyssey app and everywhere else podcasts are found